In the Divine Comedy, which is an Italian medieval poem written by Dante Alighieri, there's an entire book dedicated to the inferno, the hell. The way that Dante tells it is obviously a fairy tale, which then gave rise to purgatory and many other things in the Catholic Church. However, that book deals with hell and eternal punishments after this life and worse and worse punishments as Dante goes worse and worse into hell. In that book, in chapter 19, he deals with people in hell in the seventh level under the earth, supposedly, and there were found those who did violence against themselves, blasphemers, particularly among these blasphemers was a pope, which, by the way, by the time Dante writes this poem, is still alive. And he was there in hell because of his offense of simony, which, if you don't know, you know, Simon the Magician in Acts of the Apostles. But throughout the Middle Ages, this, uh, this simony was the buying and selling of church offices, like Simon the Magician in Acts of the Apostle, making a profit from the things of God. Uh, church offices in the Catholic Church for bishops and cardinals were sold to people in exchange for money. And Dante comments how countless souls were misled away by such sacrilege. Sacrilege, friends, is doing things in the name of God, pretending to represent the God of the Bible, as the religious leaders did in our text, but through scandals, turning the world upside down. This is what sacrilege looked like. In the case of our text tonight, we want to enter the atmosphere among God's supposed people just before exile. Here we have the temple of God in the Old Testament. However, it's turned to, into a great abomination. And it's about to be destroyed because God says to the prophet Ezekiel, you will see greater and worse sacrilege. Sacrilege, friends, is the violation or the injurious treatment of a sacred object, a site or a person. As we continue to look at uh, this theme in the ma major prophet of sin and judgment and restoration, we could not go through the entirety of the cases of Israel's sin, which are many. And I chose this passage in particular because it's the most representative of what made exile ultimately justifiable in the eyes of the Lord. The sin of sacrilege is the most offensive sin to God. From another important major prophets, again, we have Ezekiel, we looked at Jeremiah, we looked at Isaiah. Ezekiel, he's another prophet that had his share of rejection from the people. Uh, in uh, chapter 33, Ezekiel has to face that rejection in verse 30 to 32. Ezekiel 33, verse 30 to 32. People come to you, Ezekiel, and sit before you to hear your words but they do not put them in practice. Their mouth speaks of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them, you, Ezekiel, are nothing more than one who sing love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them in practice. But this issue of disobedience was deeper than that. It led to idolatry. Ezekiel 14 gives the example in chapter 14, a few chapters ahead, verses 2 to 4. The elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me, in front of Ezekiel. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men, and set up idols in their hearts, and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. 
Should I let them inquire of me at all? When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them. I myself, in keeping with their great idolatry. And in light of such stubborn unrepentance, right inside the temple, that is sacrilege. We see here that the destruction of the temple is the only solution of a complete and permanent apostasy among the professing Israelites. And so this passage represents for us the epitome of Israel's sin. The temple is defiled, which ultimately brings to the glory of God, departing from the temple, and then the temple getting destroyed. And we're still in the prophecies of the book uh, prior to that moment. And the main cause of punishment remains idolatry. This theme of idolatry. Idolatry, friends, is when we worship or adore anyone or anything other than the Lord God. And that, friends, is a, an offense against our Creator, as well as for the idolater himself, because he says to a piece of wood, you are my God, save me. Nothing more absurd. And Israel here in our text engaged in this by worshiping demonic gods from surrounding nations through images, idols, statues, or even bowing down to creation itself, whether it's the sun, which is a degrading of humanity. It's a, an offense to the invisible God, uh, using superstitious symbols and at times even sexual symbols. Idolatry, you see, opens the way to other and many other sins. And this is not something that all of a sudden you come to the New Testament and idolatry disappears. It remains a constant temptation even for the believer. Children, little children, keep yourself from idols, says John in his epistles. Idolatry, it's like a track, friends, on which the train of untold demons can ride. And that is exactly the tragedy. And you have to see this dreadful picture tonight to realize the magnitude of the sin that then brought the magnitude of the wrath of God. The problem is not just idolatry, but idolatry within the walls of the house of God. Profanity in the sacred space, the temple, abominable sins taking place inside the house of God, which brought unpardonable sacrilege, the profanation of holy things, the perverse misuse of things consecrated to God. Romans 2 verse 22 uses that word sacrilege, the only place in scripture. You who abhor idols, you rob temples, question mark. That the temple plunderer is a sacrilegious person. And so we see here in our text described for us the hopeless spiral of that sacrilegious sin. Greater and greater sin, worse and worse sin taking place right inside the house of God. And we could say the same of the church today. Whenever sin abounds in the church, it is the main reason for God to send divine judgments upon the land. It justifies, by the way, the glory and the presence of God leaving the house of God. A future chapter of Ezekiel will show that and ultimately the destruction of that temple. It no longer has any purpose because of the backsliding and the absolute idolatry that took place there. This is the, fall, the falling away, friends, that happens before God unleashes the wrath upon a nation. This is why God withdraws from those who claim to represent Him. And the atmosphere here is of secrecy. 
God unfolds the self-deception of all the temple goers who thought nobody sees this. Yet God sees it. He sends his wrath upon them throughout this passage in the entire book of, of Ezekiel. You have Ezekiel is the son of man. He is a weak and frail man. He has received these lofty visions, but he's just a man. And he's granted to see visions of the idolatry and universal corruption going on in Jerusalem right inside of the temple so that the prophet may know why exile is the only solution. Here we zoom into the temple to justify the punishment of God. Verse 1 gives us some context. Ezekiel was sitting in his house. And there you have the elders of Judah. The same ones who are making and according to the vision have committed all this sacrilege are coming right in front of the, of the prophet. Sacrilege again as the misuse or violation of what is regarded as sacred. But they have no conscience to stand in front of God's servant trusting that he doesn't know what they do in secret. And verse 2 to 4, there's this vision of the glory of God. The double affront to the glory of God that sin in the temple has. Here you have a person full of fire below and yellow brightness above. A glorious person. We don't know who is he is. But the point is, he takes Ezekiel by the air. Whenever someone takes you by the air, is to force you under emergency situation to so that you may see something that desperately needs your attention that is what god is doing so the mysterious figure takes the prophet to jerusalem all the way to the temple and the the, the sins here again is idolatry that is nothing short than a demonic and satanic attempt to what corrupt the worship of god it shows us how serious the problem in the eyes of God is of corrupting the worship of God as the ultimate cause of judgment. The violation of the glory of God is an abomination in the eyes of God. And it must be put to an end by the Lord Himself. And here's what the passage is all about. It's all about this down spiral of idolatry in the house of God that it becomes so widespread, so hopeless, so depraved that God has no other choice but to destroy the temple. And lately, next time we'll, so, we'll see the destruction of Jerusalem as we conclude the cycle of the prophets. But the first cycle here is this. The idolatrous desecration of God's house. If you have your outline in verses 5 and 6. Here you see that the idols in the house of God cause jealousy in God. And lead to a breakup between the heavenly husband, God, and his supposedly people, Israel. There is an image of jealousy placed right inside the temple of God. Verse 5. This image that stood of jealousy, of indignation, which was probably a statue or a figure of an icon. Jealousy here can refer to uh, lust, passion, ardor. Uh, possibly it was a figure of a sex goddess, Asherah. Often Old Testament prophets spoke, in fact, of idolatry as spiritual idolatry from Israel. And their relationship with the true heavenly husband. Think of it. They placed this image right in the entrance of the north gate of the temple in Jerusalem. Where everyone wanted to go to worship the Lord in the house. They had to pass through that image. Near the altar of the presence of God. Whatever it was, it was offensive to the Lord. To make the Lord angry. I mean, what do you think of a husband? Who has a sane mind. 
in his same mind would do if his wife began flirting with another man right in front of his eyes. And that is what's happening. The most uncomfortable feeling, I'm sure, come on the surface of that husband. From anger to anxiety, all the way to serious violence, in extreme cases, even homicide. I mean, that's jealousy. In another sense, this image causes God to be enraged, angry, because there is a desire from God for exclusivity in his relationship with his people. That is verse 1, image which provokes to jealousy. It causes God to get jealous. We'll see this as hopefully in next year we'll start to explore the Ten Commandments. First and Second Commandments, obviously, the jealousy of God is described there in the sense that he does not share his glory with another. Definitely not a piece of wood. And in verse 6, God asks the prophet now this question to make him ponder the gravity of the situation, the spiritual bankruptcy of Israel. Do you see what they're doing, Ezekiel? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here. Abomination is anything aesthetically and morally repulsive that makes you ceremonially unclean to approach the temple in the Old Testament. And it's abhorrent to God. It is offensive and it's detestable. Whether it was a ritual, whether it was an idolatrous behavior, an object or a lifestyle, idols are abominable to God. And we know also from Daniel 12, verse 11, that it describes this abomination of the desolation placed in the holy place, which is the temple. Uh, this uh, actually was fulfilled partly in the first, the first part of this prophecy was fulfilled in the second century before Christ. The wicked Greek pagan king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he replaced the altar of the offering in the Jewish temple with a statue of Zeus and had a pig being slaughtered, which is the unclean animal, inside of the, the altar of the temple. But even from Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus speaks of the similar double fulfillment of an abomination of desolation that will happen at the second coming with the Antichrist, sitting himself in the temple of God in Jerusalem. That is the ultimate sacrilege. And here such demonic abomination is already at work in the temple. We could say that Israel, particularly the religious people at this time, they're coming down to this level of outrageous obscenities, monstrous lawlessness. It's not just that they sin, but the detestable, disgraceful kind of sacrilegious sin. Even worse, that it happened right in front of God's presence in the temple. And that is disgusting in the eyes of God. That they allow such loathsome things to happen inside the temple. And the result that, look at the text, they cause me to depart. They make me go far away. This is describing that the depraved unholiness actually gives the holy God no choice but to leave the temple. To go away from the sanctuary. That the sin of Israel are driving God's presence further and further away from the temple. That in order to defend his reputation, God now has to abandon his place in the house of God. Because the place of worship has been turned into a cloth for immoral, idolatrous people who are not repenting. Friends, when holy places are no longer holy but profane, the, the, that, that, that leads God to depart. The glory has departed. A.W. Tozer says this, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. 
What we learn here is that the sacrilege in our story is when the worst sinful affront to God's holiness is from those who claim greatest closeness to Him. Notice how our sin can indeed drive God's presence away from our land, away from our places of worship. Now we know God is present everywhere. But you see, God is not present everywhere in the same way. I'm sure God is not present in hell in the same way in which He is present in heaven. And likewise, the special presence of God's glory in the temple, it's something distinctive, something weighty, something powerful that makes everything bright. And the sin of God's people can back then as well as today drive the special glorious presence away. Where is God in the contemporary church in America today compared to the glory that was in this land in the centuries past? Yes, you have a lot of noise in churches. But the presence and the confirming power of the risen Christ in His church is no longer manifest. And when that happens, we have everything to dread for, friends. All because of sin. When sin re reaches this sacrilegious level. And then the, this first uh, cycle ends with, you know, God says, Turn again, turn, turn with me, Ezekiel. You will see greater abominations than these. It's like if someone were to go to Washington, D.C. right now. His first day of work, he sees some corruption in the government of the politicians. And they tell him, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. And that is what's happening here. Ezekiel, you better brace yourself. There's worse. You will see worse things than these. Which is the refrain of our text. Showing us that the backsliding, and the, 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 the backsliding of Israel is in a hopeless abyss of apostasy. That only the destruction of the temple and the complete judgment can stop this constant down spiral. That is the tragic truth of our text. The sacrilegious picture of Israel at this time. That God wants to inform His true servant, the prophet, how bad things really are beyond the surface. I think if I was Ezekiel, I would have entered in despair. I would have been unable to bear the sight of all such iniquity going on under the carpet. The worsening and worsening of things in the house of God. And we're seeing right now immorality, apostasy, headlong. And it doesn't begin in the culture, friends, but in the church. The wickedness in the culture is just a reflection of the decline in the church. And the, the trajectory that we see here is a hopeless down spiral. When repentance seems hopeless, the only alternative is more and more apostasy. Worthy of greater and greater judgment. Worthy of greater judgment also that the pagans who have no allegiance to the temple. They have no allegiance to God and the promised land. But they are doing better than the Israelites here. Let's look at the second cycle here. And uh, that is kind of two parts. The first part is verse 7 to 13. Which is essentially the widespread the sacrilege. This sacrilege is widespread. And that's the problem. First of all among the leaders. The men. The men are not leading. The spiritual leaders. And then we'll look at the women later. Imagine a time when the totality of pastors in a nation engages in secret abominable practice. That was the case in Ezekiel 8. That behind the closed doors, there's a hole in the wall. Ezekiel is given permission to spy into the peephole and to see the wicked abominations that are taking place behind the door, behind closed doors, behind the curtains. There's a, a beautiful... An unexpected view of the Vatican in Italy uh, that is in front of this hill. 
but you can see the Vatican only through a peephole, actually. And there's a crowd of tourists that love to go all the way up there to be able to look through the people. And there you have the Vatican surrounded by this garden. Beautiful picture. But the moment you realize all the corruption that goes on in the Vatican, the moment you realize all the, the, the wretchedness that goes in the name of God in that place, it's no longer such a pretty picture, isn't it? To look inside of that spy hole. God is giving the prophet Ezekiel the chance to look in this pile hole of all the priests and elders of the temple for a moment. And what does he see? Sacrilege. The deception is people professing to know God, doing wicked things in secret, blindly thinks, oh, no one knows. Uh, but God does. And what God sees if he looks under this pie hole, Ezekiel exposes sin, and sin must be exposed in the church, friends. Because if you don't, it grows worse and worse. And ultimately, there is no hiding place from God. Luke 12 says, nothing is covered up that it will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And there's many ways in which spile holes take place today. Today it's technology, definitely, that people can gaze on things online and you, you, you have this access to personal privacy, actually, and, and you can see into people's life. But worst of all, when people who are professing Christian engage in all sorts of bad things and give actually a bad example to the world, the question is not as if God sees, but... We know that He does. Whether we like it or not, everything we do happens in the presence of God, before His face. Whatever you do or wherever you may go, you are still acting under the gaze of God. And that, friend, requires that you and I live a life of integrity, wholly united to God, coherent with Him. Unless, like the elders of Israel, we find us committing again the sacrilege here. And in verse 10 to 13, what, what is the sacrilege here? They engage in bestial worships there's creeping things abominable beasts verse 10 idols portrayed all around the walls and it's nothing short of a shamanic worship when i was in africa i actually went to one of those shaman uh, workshop which is it's it's ugly it's a disgusting items that are used to cause an ill omen to fall upon a person that you are you you have an antipathy that is nothing short than demonic stuff over there but romans 1 speaks of this in verse 23 the danger of those who know god and yet do not honor him as god which leads to exchanging the glory of the immortal god for images made to look like a mortal human being birds animals and reptiles and paul in first corinthians chapter 8 warns that idols are no true god yet in chapter 10 he says that that actually behind idols is the worship of demons the point is, idols are not God, and they hide a demonic attempt that is treating something as only God is worthy to be treated. And it doesn't mean there is nothing behind idolatry. Satan is definitely behind idolatry. It might sound foreign to us, we live in a different century, but before you say, I'm innocent from idolatry, realize that idolatry goes far deeper than a statue, far deeper than an image. It's the same passage of chapter 1 of Romans, speaks of, homosexuality, bestiality, greed, malice, murder, strife, deceit, slander, arrogance. All these are flowing from such rejection of the living God in idolatry in the heart. A.W. Tozer says, an idol in the mind is as offensive to God as an idol in the hand. That is the foolishness of our day and age, by the way. Pure and simple. 
Worst of all, when the church engages in such redefinition of God, it is indeed shameful even to speak of those things. And you look at our generation, even the church, if we're not careful, we can embrace a lot of idols. The idol of personal identity, the idol of money, the idol of a professional success, social status, influence, fame, physical appearance, entertainment, sex, comfort, technology, even family, even good things can become idols. And what do you think when a, when a jealous God now is required to bow to those things? And they have to take first place than the living God. When profanities enter the court of the Lord, when people claim to be the people of the book, are consumed by those things, and that yet they claim allegiance to the God of the Bible. Verse 11 and 12 continues, Who are the men who are doing this creepy scenery? Who do you think is engaging in this? The 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Which is the totality, the totality. In Exodus 24, you have 70 men, the elders, who are having a meal with God, with Moses. And look how debased they got themselves into at this point in Israel's history. The supposed leaders in the community, the supposed leaders who make religious and social decisions, the pastors, we could say. And they're mentioned in the, the text by their name. Right there in the middle of the room, burning incense to false gods, you have the totality of the house of Israel. The, that's a lot of leaders, a lot of men, if not the entirety. Have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do, says God to Ezekiel. They do such things in the dark because they obviously are ashamed of it. And in the secret, they, they worship their own idols. They have their idolatry. But how do they reassure themselves? What excuse do they use for this? You see, they bought into the lie of a numb conscience that says, The Lord does not see us. They think that God does not know what they're doing. How foolish to, to think that the all-knowing, ever-present God, the one who made the eye, does not see. And then they say, oh, the Lord has forsaken the land. It's gone away somewhere, abandoning the country, and we can do whatever we want now. And since we're under this hopeless situation, since it's unavoidable, we might as well dive into sin, full force. But they fail to realize that the wrath is quick to come upon them. Amos 9 verse 8 says, The eye of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. And then, once again, verse 13, our refrain, you will see greater sacrilege. You will see worse and worse things than this. See, only a religious person can perpetuate sacrilege. And from the top down here, you have corruption to the core. I mean, spiritual leaders are supposed to defend integrity, Defend goodness, wholeness. Here you find the entirety of them engaging in things that will make any person with the same mind vomit, let alone a believer. And uh, that is the, the tentacle of evil. How bad were they widespread before judgment? Corruption, not just in government. It's a, a corruption that cor flows from the religious ladder all the way to societies. It's like if pastors behind the curtains are unfaithful and lead everyone else astray. And what is more troubling in our text is how the same mindset back then is taking over today. The same self-deception is beyond anything as unimaginable as long as it's in secret. And this, almost to think, it mentally didn't happen. They want to keep a good opinion of integrity. But the tragic truth is that there's a monster under the closet and that is destroying the purity of the church 
from integrity to indecency, from the house of God to the house of Satan. This is purely demonic. And you can come with plenty of examples today. I mean, one of them was what has happened with Ravid Zacharias, who had a wonderful ministry of apologetics. He was famous Christian leaders. He spoke in so many conferences, so many countries. And then comes to find out after his death, this, this guy has engaged in uh, sexual abuse after sexual abuse throughout his life, has never actually been stopped from being in leadership. But you see, he never escaped the, the all-seeing eye of God. He ultimately died of cancer and a prostate, and, and that was it. But this is just one of the examples of the many sacrileges that take place in the church today. Whether it's uh, the sexual abuse, whether it's normalization of homosexuality, sex outside marriage, lack of church discipline, making money out of the things of God, spreading false teaching, unbiblical ways of worship. Sacrileges are still alive today in the church as back then. People are still, by sacrilege, stealing the sanctity of God to apply it to unholy things. And what tends to happen, as the leaders go, so the people. They begin to reason, so and so did it, the top leader. So now everyone else is justified in imitating and sharing in the compromises. I'm not hurting anyone, they think. God has left us. Not judgment has not, not come on us, so let's continue. That is total blindness. They mistake God's forbearance as a pretext. But exile will come, and we'll see that next time. This is, by the way, always how the Reformation starts. Someone like a prophet here has to come and expose sin. To level down all the corruption that by the silent blind majority had been allowed to grow unnoticed until it gets to the brim. And then it implodes. And hopefully either reformation happens or <laughs> judgment. This is what the prophet did here. After all, Ezekiel wrote the, the real sin by real people in his book as an expose of Jerusalem religious leaders. Likewise, Jesus does the same, by the way. He, he comes and cleanses the temple, remember? From all the corruptions, all the sacrilegious marketing that was taking place in the temple. But it comes a time, you see, then it leads to exile. There comes a time where it leads to a 70 AD experience after Christ's death, that the temple must be destroyed. Where the sin and affront of sacrilege toward God is so great that even any hope of reformation is gone. Judgment and destruction of the temple remains the only alternative. Friends, how tragic that the religious leaders, without any fear of God, they were totally unconcerned that they drove God's presence away by their sin. They were so deceived to think that there's no consequence. And they also let the ladies imitate. That is the second part of that cycle, 14 to 15. Even the ladies, even the women are no better than the men. They too inside the temple engage in similar false worship. And they are weeping for their sun god. Verse 14 is the north of the gate. And you find women weeping for Tammuz. Which was a fertility god of the Babylonians. The same ones who will then bring all these women to exile. The Babylonian god was a husband of the goddess Ishtar, the Chaldeans. And they celebrate a month in honor of this God between June and July. Supposedly the, the God died every year. And so he was subsequently resurrected. I mean, that, that's demonic. How the, the, Satan really uses things to pervert them. Isn't it interesting? And so they lament for their gods. But the problem here of the sacrilege is that it takes place 
right within the temple of God. I mean, women tend to be more emotional than men. We see how the devil tempts different people by tempting them in their weakness. The irrationality of weeping for the death of a false god. Can you imagine? And yet, you, you find no less absurdities in our society. Uh, my brother was just showing me a new claim that was saying that now prostitution needs to be allowed so that the disabled people can actually be protected. That is, that is how, how backward we have gone. That in, in the same way of Israel, idolatry, it's, it's, it's a completely corrupting of the mind of people. Listening to the voice of the snake. And back in Italy, how many times I see women play, pr praying and weeping over the icon of the Virgin Mary uh, with baby Jesus and the saints and uh, adoring, kneeling, praying, seeking deaf objects as mean of procuring grace. But then let's look at the fourth one, which is the, um, the secrecy, almost esoteric desecration of God's house. Verse 16 to 18 at the end of our text. They turn their back on God. Israel is going after idols. They turn their back on God. And God now is justified to pour out His wrath full force toward the temple. That, that's what we will begin and, and conclude next time. But people all the way to the inner court are bowing down to these false idols. You have 25 men, verse 16, turning their back on the God of Israel. And they worship the sun. They have turned to me their back, says uh, the Lord, not their face, and though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. That was Jeremiah 32. And ultimately, this worship of the sun was a practice that the wicked king Manasseh had introduced. And when sin, friends, gets to this level, when no one fears God anymore, that no one cares anymore about pleasing God, and the added monstrosity of idolatry that you worship the sun now, and the Israelites cannot just do that. They have to insult God by doing it right before His face. They're turning the back from the temple toward the sun. They pretend to worship God, but you cannot worship God and other things at the same time. You cannot hold on to idols that, you, that if you do, you have already turned your back on the living God. And that leads to verse 17, violence. That ultimately, idolatry spreads... And the violence that follows deserves the judgment of God. And uh, it encourages us to realize how God does not do anything without first, however, telling, telling uh, the prophet uh, Ezekiel, have you seen all these abominable things? It's, it, it's considered by them a trivial things, a no big deal, but it leads this idolatry to violence, cruelty. They provoke me to anger, putting their branch to their nose which could either refer to an idolatrous practice or simply to offend God, irritating and harassing through those things. They're mocking and insulting God in the most way offensive. And therefore, verse 18, the result of all this abomination is exile. That inside of the temple, there's sacrilege. God promises to act now in fury, to execute His wrath. In, in light of their sacrileges, this is what God ought to do. They will feel all the force of God's anger. They will have an angry God on their hands now. Through exile, God's anger and rage is about to be poured out. His eyes, says the Lord, will not spare. God will not feel sorry about this. He will have no pity. Time for mercy is over. 
And, and they, although they cry out aloud, I will not hear them. See, if you engage in worship God and idols, you pray and mix your prayer with unrepented sin or of the worst kind, don't expect God to come to your help in time of disaster. All this, the vision is intended to show ultimately that God is justified to destroy completely the temple. Christopher Nessus once said, hell is to, is to be escaped by heeding. This is indeed a very, very dark picture. Yet sadly, it's a very similar picture to what we have today. Even professing Christians constantly tumbling their nose at God, whatever they do things, promote things or engage in things contrary to God's will. And they do so in, inside the walls of the church. And what is the Lord supposed to do with all the endless cycle of sacrileges going on in the church as it was going on back then? God will take vengeance, friends, for all those sources of profanity. He can no longer bypass the affront. It is too much. When God calls us to turn from this sin, but we refuse to listen, it's, now is God that will not listen to us. Not only that, but... They will face the worst judgment imaginable. Think how dreadful to go through knowing that there will be no voice, no rescue, no answer from the hand of God to save them as they are brought in captivity as they see the temple burned in fire. What do you think is reserved in hell for people who commit blatant sins in the house of God without turning away from that? What greater aggravation of the eternal torment will they face not far from the lake of fire, surely. So, how do we conclude here, friends? Worship matters. If there's one thing that this uh, dreadful negative pictures teaches us, and by negative now on the positive side, is that worship matters in the eyes of God, particularly worship that is holy, that worship may be proper, that the church may be pure, that God's name may be upholded as holy. That the sacred may not be desecrated. And this is so. Then we are in, in deep trouble as a contemporary church. Anyone engaging in compromise. Should have lost his position of leadership. In this case the, the, the 70 elders should have resigned. Uh, and what, what a prospect friends. The heavenly husband. Has to face. The jealousy and the fury that comes out of it. Over the church. He treasures the church. Friends, that is what we have to deal. And therefore, the spiritual leader should have stepped down for the honor of the one they have to give an account for. The day that they met finally Yahweh. And, and he told them, what did you do with my people? Where did you let them? That is the fury of God. Friends, we don't know the half of the evil we have done. And I want to say the only antidote to the wretchedness among those who are supposed to represent God is repentance. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, turning away from sacrileges by restoring the worship of God to the original intended purity. That's reformation. But even that repentance from idolatry, you look at the Old Testament, a good king arises like Josiah, or even a wicked king Manasseh repents. This is recorded briefly in the scripture. There's also, outside of scripture, a, a prayer that Manasseh makes in exile. He's brought himself to exile. Then he repents of all the idolatries. He acknowledged God. And that shows you that it is possible, even for the worst sacrileges, to be forgiven if we turn away from sin. However, the, the overall sin 
was too great to be left unpunished. The nation needed to be punished. The affront to the holy glory of God by the church can go one step too far indeed. God had, can give the opportunity after opportunity, but if no repentance gone, then the down spiral sin is unstoppable. Only complete judgment can stop it. And God's glory and presence abandons the temple. That is the tragedy. And as we'll see next time, his next evening service, the temple is destroyed. It's all over. If this was all, I want to say we will be helpless and hopeless and doomed. But aren't you glad that there is a solution? There is a hope after the judgment. That there is a restoration. That ultimately, that finally, the day came for a repentant remnant to be rescued from the depth of depravity. Why? Because now comes the obedient priest, Jesus Christ, who, yes, he was tempted by the idolatry of earthly possessions. Yes, he was tempted by the prestige. Yes, he was te tempted by self-esteem and power by the hand of Satan there in the wilderness. But unlike the bad leaders of Israel, when Satan told him, you bow down and worship me and I'll give you all those things. What does Jesus say? You, Satan, be gone. You shall worship God alone. He obeyed. And also, he cleanses the temple from all the wretchedness that was going on within the temple. He, he claims that we must worship God and Him alone. And Christ is the true temple Himself. In fact, He broke the divide between the sacred and the common. Which doesn't mean now that we can carelessly behave. It means that now everything has become sacred. Your entire life is dedicated to this holiness. But like Ezekiel, both Jesus and John the Baptist... Centuries later, testify of the same reality of the unrepentance, the same stubborn unwillingness of people, like in Ezekiel's day. We played the flute for Israel. They did not dance. We wailed sad dirges, but the people did not mourn and cried aloud. How sad to see the level of which sacrilege blinds people. And Jesus was indeed destroyed by the judgment of God for your sin. But he was raised back to life. Ultimately, he fulfills all the hopes to have God's presence in our midst forever, friends. With a, the veil being torn into the direct access to the heavenly tabernacle. But remember, this does not diminish the holiness of God. This does not diminish that there are certain sins indeed that in their sacrilegious nature cannot be atoned in any other way by, by the death of the doer. You think about the revelation. There's seven churches that John writes to. God had to spit an unrepentant church out of his mouth. That ultimately it comes even to that. A warning for all of us. That if God did not spare the natural branches, which is Israel, that God completely cut off, neither will he spare you. Romans 11 verse 21. Just like the fallen angels. We're not spared. When they sacrilegiously sinned, the, Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to come to the level of God. Nothing unclean, nothing sinful shall enter that perfect heavenly sanctuary. So how does Ezekiel help us to understand sacrileges? Sacrilege, I could describe it, and I end here, as the sacred space turned into shameless superstition. And that, friends, only lead to 